Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Awesomes, welcome to another episode in our Extra Awesome series. From time to time, we take a break from our regularly scheduled programming to talk about things that are being buzzed about in our culture. And today, we are going to talk about the new Netflix release, and with an E. And I'm joined today by my dear friend, Sarah Bessie. Sarah is the author of Jesus Feminist and Out of Sorts. She's a blogger, a speaker, a preacher. She's a former Sort of Awesome guest from way back in episode 32 and a fellow Enneagram type nine. And so Sarah, you have, I know, a lot of words about Anne with an E, but first, hello and how are you? I am doing great. I'm so happy to be here. It is one of the great joys of my life that I'm a former guest on Sort of Awesome. Have in my suit. I'm in Toronto right now. I'm I'm uh, speaking at an event here, and in my suitcase at this blessed moment, I have that modern kiwi dress that you oh, talk good. about. <laughs> oh my gosh, that makes me so happy! <laughs> I totally went and ordered it on Amazon, and then now I have it for when I'm traveling. <laughs> it is the best for travel and beyond. So, oh, that makes my heart so happy. So, Sarah, I asked you to come on Extra Awesome and sit down with me to talk about this new series here in the U.S. released on Netflix as Anne with an E. I think it's just called Anne in the Canadian release. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, I should also mention that in case you aren't familiar with Sarah, she also happens to be one of my very favorite Canadians. And so she brings... uh, I'm right right underneath Justin Trudeau, I'm sure. I think for most people, you totally are. I think that's very accurate. Um, But so she's going to be able to bring the Canadian perspective to talking about this beloved series from L.M. Montgomery, and then what we are seeing with this reimagining and reframing of it in the new release. In fact, Sarah, you were telling me that just today you were stopping by L.M. Montgomery's house there, and um, it's just perfect timing to kind of sit down and talk about all things. And back at the beginning of May, you wrote a piece um, for your blog called Why You Need to Watch the New Anne Series Dash. Yes, I'm talking to you, fellow purists. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love there are that. a lot of us. We are very passionate. We are a very, very passionate group of people. <laughs> I, I have to say it's so true. I myself am not one of the purists. I read Anne of Green Gables as a child, and I found it to be perfectly um, enjoyable reading. And I saw the series once or twice, but I'm not quite the devotee that some of our listeners are. And that, they're, I mean, around the world, people have big feelings about the character of Anne Shirley. In fact, Sarah, you have such big feelings about Anne that she inspired the naming of one of your children. Yes. You know, I have loved Anne since the time I was a small child. And um, my love for the series grew with me. And not only that series, but all of Ella Montgomery's books. She's a very prolific writer. And she had written the Emily series and then a lot of standalone novels. She wrote novels for adults. She wrote, um, you know, poems. She you know, was a prolific diarist. And so she has lots of journals. I mean, so she was she had a lot of words. <laughs> so, and I think I might have read them all six oh. times. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love it. Well, I was a huge, um, huge fan when I found out that we were um, expecting our first. I you know we went through and we kind of looked at all the different names and I tried so hard. I did. <laughs> I tried so hard to pretend that this was like just a normal naming process. And in my heart of hearts, <laughs> I was like, what am I going to name this child other than Anne? Like, yes. there's just not another name. There couldn't possibly be another name. But I gamely tried as well as I could. And it was so funny. My husband just the whole time was watching me like, I 100% know what's going to happen here. <laughs> and we picked our top three names for a boy and our top three names for a girl. And our idea was that when we went um, into the hospital and we had our baby, that we wanted to kind of look at them. We weren't going to make a decision about names until we actually saw them. First of all, I had a friend who actually was told she was having one type. Uh, she thought she was told she was having a boy and then she came home with a girl. And uh -huh. so yes, it I does happen. In, it does happen often, way more than you think. Uh -huh. And so I, I'm going to get attached to a name. I'm just going to keep it open. Honestly, I think I laid eyes on that child. They literally said, it's a girl. And I was like, it's Anne. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that so much. Well, so her name is Anne, and uh, and there was never anything else to be about it. And Anne with an E, of course. So, um, and I love that. It's so beautiful. And such. And it really does suit Anne, your Anne, so well, yeah. definitely. <laughs> She's nearly 11 now, if you can believe that. I know it. I know. Yeah. Um, so for Canadians, do you feel like that there is a special, maybe even deeper sense of attachment, both to the Anne series, but also just to L.M. Montgomery in general? Well, I, you know, definitely, I think so. I mean, it's a huge part of our national consciousness, right? And so, I mean, even for those of us who were Westerners, I grew up more in the prairies, um, you know, it definitely shapes you know, our, our understanding of childhood and literature, it's kind of our place mm. on the world stage when it comes to literature. And so there's a, you know, a big part of our history, a big part of how we, we grow up. But then, of course, for my generation, um, the 1985 miniseries that came out with Megan Follows, and then, of course, the sequel that came out in 87, deeply shaped how we saw the Anne books, mm. right? Because then we read them and we pictured Megan Follows in that that role. We pictured Jonathan Crombie as as Gilbert and, of course, more, you know, Marilla and Matthew and everything else. And I mean, all of us who are devoted to the Anne series often love that miniseries. And there have been other sequels. We do not speak of them. <laughs> <laughs> we, do not, we do not speak of the third Anne movie or the 
you know, prequel. We don't just like we don't talk about the last few seasons of Road to Avonlea or whatever mess mm-hmm. that was that they called Jane of Lantern Hill on CBC back in the 80s. Like we just don't speak of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's been other, you know, miniseries. Um, there were mov- uh, was a movie done back in the 40s. And I think there was one on PBS that was done just recently with Martin Sheen. So I mean, they're always terrible. Yes, you know, yes. so I think we've kind of gotten to the point as purists where we just kind of knew there was one miniseries for Anne. This was what it was. And we were very devoted to it in addition, of course, to the books and, and all the other stories as well. Well, I have to tell you that makes so much sense in the context of this new series that's come out by a fellow Canadian-born woman. Uh, Moira Wally Beckett is the woman who wrote and is sort of the showrunner behind the new Anne with an E series. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Moira Wally Beckett's work, she is a a very well-known television writer. In fact, she was a a longtime producer and writer on Breaking Bad. And most notably, she won an Emmy for writing the Ozymandias episode, which is by far. In in a very intense and brutal series, the Ozymandias episode is one of the most brutal episodes and most suspense-filled episodes of that series. In fact, some critics say that that particular episode of Breaking Bad may be one of the best hours of television ever in history. So her writing credibility coming to, you know, Anne with an E is very prolific. And also she is clearly a woman and an artist, a creator who's not afraid to go to some dark places and to go to some intense places. So I know that you knew that going into, and you, you in Canada, I think you all had the opportunity to watch the entire series before it was released here in the U.S. So I know that you talked about in your piece on your blog that you had a little trepidation and some outright suspicion going into this new imagining of it from Moira Wally Beckett. So I was wondering if you could just kind of walk us through a little bit about, you know, like how you were a little bit skeptical and then how your feelings about the series unfolded as you were watching? Well, really, I, I mean, from the time they announced it, they announced it back here in Canada, probably two years ago, or even a year and a half ago, that this was going to be a series. And I mean, I think that you could have heard the collective eye roll. You know, that probably set the earth off its, uh, you know, off its gravitational axis. Like we just, what, like, I, you know, I did not watch Breaking Bad. And I don't know if that makes me, you know, uh, pop culture anathema, but I did not watch Breaking Bad cannot stomach any amount of violence and just am not I was like are you kidding me this is the worst idea I've ever heard in my entire life I mean this is even worse than putting Anne and Gilbert in the timeline of World War One when we all know that's realist timeline and so there was no, no way that this could be rescued in my opinion and so I mean I was totally in there with everybody where you know why can't Hollywood leave well enough alone and why is nothing sacred mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. people can they not just leave something to the rest of us who want something that is good and real and this is enough and we don't need anything else and leave it alone don't touch it and you know honestly I wasn't sure if I was going to watch it because I tried to watch a couple other of the adaptations that had happened and I usually ended up giving up halfway through it I couldn't even hate watch it right but set my PVR for it. And I sat down to watch it. Um, I had heard through the grapevine, it wasn't safe for kids. So I didn't have any of my children with me. I have four children. And I just watched it just myself late one evening. And I was fully prepared to hate it with my whole heart. Like that was absolutely my predisposition. Like there was no way that this could possibly measure up to the original miniseries, let alone the source material. Mm. And I found myself sobbing throughout the entire first episode Mm -hmm. and just like 
this was not, it was, it was not what I expected. And it was everything I think that Ellen Montgomery would have loved. Oh, wow. That's huge to be able to say that. Yeah. You know, it was, um, I mean, there's so many different aspects of it that are, um, that are different. And I think that's because, you know, the writers who came in, um, you know, weren't, were on, weren't afraid to kind of pull back the, I don't know, it's kind of like the lace doilies Mm. that we kind of, drape mm-hmm. over these things. You know, we do tend to do that with a lot of children's literature. But when you're talking about something like Anne of Green Gables, um, that is so deeply shaped our consciousness and, you know, was a definitely a period piece. There's a lot of things that we miss because we weren't didn't exist in that time period. And and when you go back and you read Ella Montgomery's journals and you read more about her life, you know, you begin to understand more about the context in which she was telling the story. You begin to understand Anne more. And you know, and to be perfectly honest with you, being a Canadian there's a lot of us who are just, you know, I, I look across, I mean, there's definitely the sentimental purists like myself. Yeah. There are a lot of people who just, you know, are bored with it. They're done with it. They think it's over, you know, overwatched, overdone, you know, it's too precious. It's mm, mm, right, all these other right. different types of things. And even Ella Montgomery during her life never received a lot of respect from the literary community in Canada because they did just have her pigeonholed as this, you know, sweet, um, you know, child stories that she was writing, no matter what she wrote, no matter what she did, no matter what novels she produced, you know, she couldn't escape this little pigeonhole that people sort of had for her. And I think that sometimes we put Anna Green Gables in that same, that same box, and we miss what it really is. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I think that through I mean, I think that that it's so unfortunate that it happens that way. But I think so often, artists and writers and people who create things for the context of children to enjoy are so easily dismissed by the sort of larger literary community. And it's such a shame, because often, the people who do write for that age group and do it well, are really digging in and carefully, but frankly, dealing with some very dark things. And they manage to do it in a way that makes it approachable for children to be able to engage with the material. And that's very, I mean, that's, that takes a very special talent to be able to do that. No, it absolutely does. You know, Madeline Langell used to say that if you can't write the book for adults, then you need to write it for children. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's there's still that same idea. And I would even make the argument that not that Anna Green Gables wasn't necessarily written for children. Mm, It was, you know, it, it it's, it was written about a child, but it doesn't necessarily follow that it was written expressly for a seven year old, or for a 10 year old. And particularly when you take it in the context of her later works, you begin to see things a little bit differently. Like when you're a child, you see with a child's eyes, Yes. Right. So you could read something like Anna Green Gables and, and you do, re, you know, get all of the, the you know, the, the things that maybe you would in that first viewing. But, but when you read it through the eyes of an adult, you know, the reading becomes very different because, yeah, you come to it with a different pathos. Right. When you can't read about a child that's being abandoned, you know, without beginning to understand why she talks so much, why she has imaginary friends, why she is the way that she is. And all of a sudden, all these things that seemed, you know, whimsical or. Um, or endearing or little, you know, quirks of Anne 
begin to make a lot more sense to you of, you know, issues of attachment and things that were coming along with, with being an orphan. I mean, there were a lot of times when you would read it as a child and think, well, what was wrong with her being an orphan? There's nothing wrong with someone being an orphan. What's the matter with these prejudiced people? And then later on, you begin to realize like, you know what, this is what orphanages and foster care was like in the 1890s. And so of course, these were the things that they were that people were worried they were bringing to their church lovely, you know, Presbyterian church children, Um, you know, context and bullying. I mean, just the the function of how the system worked was not romantic. And you can read it through the eyes of an innocent as a child. And I think that's a tremendous gift, Mm -hmm. right? Nobody wants to take away the childlike reading. Nobody wants to take away that innocence. Um, There still will always be, you know, that, that reading of it. But you know what? It is fresh and alive and good, and it is reading that story through the eyes of an of an adult. I think that has awakened to the larger story and context of what Annie is, and I think to me that makes it more powerful. And I think that's honestly how Ella Montgomery saw mm. the work. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. It really does. And for me, a sort of parallel is um, I didn't spend as much time with the Anne of Green Gables with that series. But the series that captured my heart and that I spent a lot of time with as a child and, and on into my teenage years really was the Little House on the Prairie series. Yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. We're reading that right now, actually, with one of my children. I'm, of course, skipping over all the like racist bits, but we'll, we'll keep going. That's, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. I read, and, and you talk about in your piece how, you know, going back to the Anne books is kind of like going home for you. You spent so much time in them in, in all of Ellen Montgomery's works. I had a similar affection and affinity for and fondness for Laura Ingalls Wilder and her works. I'd been to a couple of her homestead sites, you know, here in middle America when I was a kid. I just adored the story so much and I, and they, they were so close to my heart. So then, of course, as a mother, I go to get them and, and check them out from the library so I can read them to my children. And yes, come across things that are not just like low key racist, they're like fully overtly racist and lots of, you know, just other things that are problematic, everything from that felt problematic to me, things that I didn't remember, like about, you know, the general brutality of life um, on a farm or life in a, a homestead where things were so very different. When you're a child, you read it and kind of, you don't really have maybe a lot of times the, that, um, like you said, the grown up context to be able to really think through what that would be like. But I remember reading them to my children and just being completely taken aback by how much I had missed as a child. And I'm sure all of us have experienced that, whether it's like re-listening to song lyrics that, you know, we would sing along in the car and then you, when you're an adult, you're like, wow. I didn't realize that was so explicitly about sex or whatever. (laughs) Well, Um, it's totally true. And Laura Ingalls Wilder even had in her journals, I mean, a tremendous amount of of darkness and nuance and complexity that she kind of added to that story. So you imagine doing a Little House on the Prairie adaptation now, you know, like through through that eye, right, as opposed to, you know, it doesn't take away from the magic of the, you know, TV series that people all loved or the, you know, books that were written for children. But there's still another story that existed at that time, right? Yes. And a specific example that I wanted to talk about that you kind of brought out in your um, piece on your blog was about um, you mentions kind of a little side story with a character named Prissy Andrews and the blossoming relationship between her and the teacher, Mr. Phillips, which again, I think maybe in the, um, in the original Anne of Green Gables series is kind of maybe glossed over or treated with a little bit of a wink, you know? Um, and then 
as an adult, when you experience that kind of interaction, it does set off kind of some alarm bells. And in fact, in the Anne with an E series, the treatment is, it turns out to be really different. It's not quite with a wink. Absolutely not. You know, and I think that that's the, the aspect. I mean, there's definitely departures in this series. If you're a purist and you want it to be, you know, line by line to the, the book, you're not going to find that. It's absolutely an adaptation for sure. And there were definitely some licenses taken. And, you know, especially if you can make it past the second episode, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> you know, the first episode's really quite, quite strict to the, the source material. And then in the second, they take a pretty big departure. And then they kind of come back. Okay. And then there's some other places where, the, where they do that sort of thing. But you know what, to be honest, the original miniseries did the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there were whole characters and storylines that did not exist in the books that, you know, Kevin Sullivan completely made up. It's just we liked them. Sure. And they fed it. Sure. They, they kind of fit in with our childlike vision of what it would be the whimsy and the, you know, uh, you know, innocence of it, I suppose. But with Prissy Andrews, the way that they kind of handled that in the in the in the books is just that the and, and then even in the Kevin Sullivan series was just, you know, here's a teacher who is, um, you know, seemingly in love with or flirting with at least a 16 year old or 15 year old in the class. Mm -hmm. And she's a queen student. And so she's, you know, a teenager. And at the time, Anne's 12. And so you're thinking she's quite grown up, right? right? She's really, she's quite a grown up. She's 16 years old. Prissy Andrews is she's getting ready for Queens. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you come back to it as an adult, and you're like, she's 16. You know, (laughs) (laughs) right, right. Yes. And they really do show Like in the Kevin Sullivan version, they kind of show that, you know, like they're flirty with each other and there's this kind of, I, you know, they're simpering at each other. It looks kind of more pathetic than anything else. Mm -hmm. And then her dad finds out about it and sends Mr. Phillips away and they have this great big party for him. And of course, that's where Anne falls off the ridgepole of Moody Spurgeon's roof and breaks her ankle, blah, blah, blah. However, in this one, they, they don't say it, but there's just this underlying way that it is shot and the way that it is done that you can see he's grooming her Mm, right and it's it's predatory and that she's deeply uncomfortable with this attention and you see how young she is like she is actually 15 or 16 year old girl and he's a grown man and all of a sudden you're like what how did I miss this this whole time how did I miss that this was no wonder Mr. Andrews wanted to send this teacher away no wonder nobody wanted him to be teaching in that school he shouldn't have been trusted around those children. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, pennies in the air and then the penny drops and you get it. You yes. know? And sometimes it takes somebody, you know, almost, you know, helping you see that. But at the time, I think that a lot of Ella Montgomery's readers, particularly, you know, in their, their late teens or early 20s would have known mm. absolutely what was happening, just like they would have known what it meant for Anne to be in an orphanage, just like they would have known why she was a little bit uh, quirky or weird. And you know what, and even this actress really captures how otherworldly and weird Anne was, how she did put off the adults in her life, how she was too intense mm. for a lot of the people, how her words didn't match with what was going on, how she was almost running really hard, yes. you know, and so all of a sudden, the things that you saw in the book or in the original series, and you think, well, she's just wonderful. She's so, you know, precocious and lovely and, and smart. And how can they not see that? When the reality is only Marilla and Matthew really saw that. And the rest of the world only saw the other side, right? The part that was off-putting, the part where she really was very different than all the other kids that were there. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, they really captured that and, and did a great job of it, too, I have to say. I mean, you know, I honestly think that maybe they've turned up the intensity a little bit in terms of, yes, the shadows are a little bit more obvious in this version, but that makes the light that much brighter. Mm. 
That's, you know, and yeah. you do find that then all of a sudden you understand how revolutionary it was that Merlin Matthew took her in right. and that they adopted her and that they loved her like a daughter and that you understand how much Matthew meant to her now yes. because it is in contrast to the way the rest of the world was with her. That is so beautiful and so powerful. And as you and I were talking about before we began recording, I mean, there's definitely a, a, a part of me, although I can be really um, quite attached to source material a lot of the time, when um, a creator, when an artist, when a writer allows me to see something that's so beloved to me in a way that's a little bit grittier, I at first I may be resistant to it, but I feel like then I can appreciate the fullness of the story even better. So um, before I let you go, I did want to ask you about one thing because I have seen, I think that overall, Anne with a Knee has been critically received wonderfully. People are really seeing a lot of these things and really praising the depths to which they went to really fill out this material and really bring it to life in some new ways that are not overly tired and overly done. Um, but there have been, uh, there's certainly been a little bit of pushback. Um, I've seen it in my own social media feeds with people who have been deeply disappointed or even unwilling to give the series a try. Recently at America Magazine, um, a writer was writing her review of it. And, and she says, Anne with an E falls prey to the war on whimsy, the tired modern tactic of reworking the classics in order to make them realistic. We must trade in the innocent, beautiful, and hopeful for the dark, broken, and edgy. And I was wondering if you have a response to that um, in terms of both Anne with an E specifically and maybe kind of larger trends in culture right now. Well, you know, I can't speak to the larger trends in culture, but I think that it's a false dichotomy to say that you have to choose between beautiful and hopeful and realistic and, and real. Uh, and I think that that's actually what Ellen Montgomery did incredibly well in her work, is that she was able to hold both of those things and hold attention really strong. These were not innocent Dick and Jane books, right? right? And, you, and if you go back and you read even, um, you know, Ellen Montgomery's life and through her lens, and you understand even the, the larger themes that she was writing about. And don't get me wrong, there are definitely some problematic things about Ellen Montgomery's work. I mean, her her stuff on indigenous people and on French communities is pretty heinous. And so there's definitely some some aspects here that, you know, that get glossed over for sure. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't see it as a war on whimsy or or even necessarily um, something that's trying to take away from what it has meant to people. And I think that's where oftentimes we, we do feel this tremendous sense of ownership to it, yes. of yeah. this work. It mm -hmm. shaped us. Mm -hmm. It made us who we are. It shaped our imaginations. It shaped how we saw the world. It shaped the kind of woman that we wanted to be. Mm -hmm. It shaped the kind of, uh, oftentimes, the kind of boy that we wanted to meet, mm -hmm. right? We wanted right. a Gilbert Clive, you know, yes. or so what, you know, you wanted a friend like Diana. You wanted, you know, and so you have all these things that deeply shaped who you are. And so it's, of course, deeply personal for how you understand it and how those things, you know, came together. And I don't think anybody wants to take away from what it has meant in, in people's lives. And if someone's disinclined to watch it, you know what, don't watch it. That's totally fine. You know, right. It's going to make you do it, right? But I think that if you really love the books and if you really love Anne, mm. uh, I think that you know that it's not one or the other. Right. Yes. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that oftentimes that's what we see happen um, with these types of things is people want to neuter them. And they want yeah. to, to neuter Anne mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and make her less progressive, less edgy, less, um, you know, difficult to read. 
um, in an effort to maybe make ourselves feel better. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know what? I still watch that 1985 series, you know, once a year, every year, at least since 1985, right? Like I, I have full understanding of what that is, but I feel like it rounds out the rest of the story. Um, it's not so much that it's, a, a you know, a need to, um, gritty it up or make it, you know, something that it's not all of this stuff or this tone is present mm. in the source material. It is, it is absolutely there. And yes, it's an adaptation and yes, there's liberties taken. Absolutely. But in terms of what the books are, I, I think that it's a misreading to think that anything that Ellen Montgomery wrote was somehow incredibly wholesome. You know, I think that she would have probably even kicked against that idea because she did really see the complexity in these things. She often was writing in her own way and in her own code to these major themes of belonging and of home and of loneliness and even of drunkenness. And, the you know, the conversation on temperance in Canada at that time and, and the victims of being children and women often, I mean, all these different types of larger conversations that were happening they're all there mm. it's all present yeah. and so for me I don't feel like it takes away the story that I loved it makes me love it more mm. it makes me see it through the eyes of an adult it makes me see how revolutionary and was it makes me see how bold and brave and unconventional and indomitable and Shirley was and it made me even more proud that my daughter is named yes. after her because I just thought oh my gosh this girl's a survivor she has you know, just overcome so much in her life that you maybe wouldn't have understood how much of an overcomer or how much of a survivor or how brave and how deeply good she was in the core of who she was. You didn't understand how deeply good Matthew was mm. or what a good friend Diana was. She wasn't, you know, such a wet blanket. She was a port in a storm in this, you know, adaptation. So you begin to get a more clear view of those things. And to me, that's not modern or gritty or anything that would take away from the innocence and life and livelihood. If anything, it intensifies it. Mm. And you begin to see really how deeply good this story really is instead of something to be just dismissed and put in a corner, you know, as a children's story, mm -hmm. you know, it begins to be, take on a whole new level of relevance, especially for our times, I think. Absolutely. Oh, Sarah, this has been so good. I'm so fired up. I'm going to watch the rest of the series for sure this weekend. Like now I really <laughs> cannot wait to dive in. I was already intrigued by the first episode, which is, we haven't even talked about this, but just visually, it's oh, so I know. gorgeous. <gasps> it's so gorgeous. Can I just tell you, like, I was so determined to hate this series and literally the opening credits started. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but they're actually paintings. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so there's a series of paintings, yes. and they've got, you know, one of the most iconic Canadian bands is the Tra Tragically Hip, yes. uh, with, led by Gord Downey. And they started playing that song, Ahead by a Century, and I nearly had to lay out on my floor. I was like, <laughs> what is happening right now? Like, <laughs> beautifully shot. It's so well yes. acted. It, you know, the writing is impeccable. And even there's these little fun Easter eggs. Like, all the, um, all the episode titles are lines from Jane Eyre. Oh, fun. I didn't even realize that. Uh, oh. They had like little nods towards other mm. other women writers who were ahead of their time. And, oh, you know, just so all gorgeous. these little moments across the way too, right? So Well, visually, it is a treat. And the story is just magnificently told. So I know you have lots of words on Anne and about, you know, that, this adaptation and L.M. Montgomery in general. So remind us all where we can find you for follow-up conversation. I know you're on Twitter often. Oh, I know. 
Twitters. Twitter, I can't quit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just Sarah Bessie everywhere. So if you go to okay. sarahbessie.com, then you'll find my links for my Facebook page and my Twitter and my Instagram. I'm not on Snapchat because I'm too old for that crap, but I'm everywhere <laughs> else. <laughs> we should be good. <laughs> okay. And that's Sarah with an H and then Bessie is B-E-S-S-E-Y. If you all want to go right now and find Sarah so you can talk a little bit more Anne, with her. Sarah, thank you so much for sitting down with us to talk about Anne right now. And if you want to follow the show and have follow-up conversation with me and the rest of the Sorta Awesome co-hosts, you can find us on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show. And we're also on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Pod. So thank you all so much for listening and we'll see y'all next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.